Okay, welcome everyone to this 11th edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner here at the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined again today by Mr. George Backrack, also a partner here at the Surety Law Group. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you missed the presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website, uh, wcslaw.com, or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we have issued 211 pins as of today, and over 440 people have called in since we started back in May. We appreciate the support, and we ask that you, know, you pass along uh, our contact information to any colleagues who you think interested in calling in and joining us. Uh, also, if you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, things that we could do, uh, please let us know. Uh, we, we're considering doing a, um, you know, an hour-long presentation where we could get some CE or CLE credits, so you know, give us your thoughts on that. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact uh, Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. So we're going to mute the line during the presentation, as always, to avoid, you know, any background noise. And um, like I said earlier, the call is being recorded. So, okay, I just muted the line. So our topic today is the limitation on the surety subrogation rights. And basically we're going to be talking about areas where the the surety subrogation rights come up a little short. And fortunately, we're all fortunate today to be joined by Mr. Subrogation, George Backrack. And I'm going to turn over the presentation to George. Good afternoon or good morning. Now, all the issues that we're going to discuss today are treated in a book, uh, the subrogation book, called the Contract Bond Surety Subrogation Rights. So if you need to refer to anything, that's a, a primary source that you could look to. Uh, before we talk about the limitations, we wanted to give you a little introduction on the surety subrogation rights themselves. At common law, the surety has a number of equitable rights that it may enforce, including its rights of exoneration and quiatimit, indemnity and reimbursement, subrogation, and contribution. While the surety may assert these common law rights, many of them have become contractual rights, either under a written indemnity agreement, as in the case of exoneration, quiatimit, indemnity, and reimbursement, or a written co-surety agreement in the case of surety's contribution rights among each other. But the surety's common law right of subrogation remains equitable in nature and does not exist in contract form. There are four essential elements required for the surety to assert its subrogation rights. First is an obligation of the principal to the obligee, which is the bonded contract. The second is the failure of the principal to perform that obligation, which is the principal's default. Third is the rights of the obligee arising from the principal's default and failure to perform. Now, the obligee's rights are under the bonded contract when the principal defaults and include the obligee's right to withhold payment of the bonded contract funds until the principal cures any defaults. And the fourth and last uh, element is the performance by the surety pursuant to its suretyship obligations 
of the obligation which the principal defaulted on and failed to perform. And that suretyship obligation is the surety's obligations under its bonds. When these four elements exist, the surety is subrogated to the rights of the obligee, the principal, and third-party claimants, namely the principal subcontractors and suppliers. The subrogation book in Chapter 3 lists all the rights of the obligee, the principal, and the third-party claimants to which a surety may be subrogated. While all four elements that form the basis of the surety's subrogation rights are based upon and defined by contract rights, namely the obligations of the obligee and the principal under the bonded contract, the principal's default under the bonded contract, the obligee's rights upon the principal's default, and the surety's obligations to the obligee under the bonds, the ultimate reason for the surety's subrogation rights is equitable in nature. The fundamental equity in permitting the surety to assert its subrogation rights is that a surety is a party that is secondarily liable for an obligation, not primarily liable. And the surety should not, in fairness, suffer loss which was caused by other parties. Subrogation is a rule that the law adopts to compel the eventual satisfaction of an obligation by the one who ought to pay for it. When the surety performs its obligations on the, the bonds for the benefit of the obligee, it is equitable for the obligee to re, be required to pay the bonded fund, contract funds to the surety. The surety's assertion of its subrogation rights allows the surety to stand in the shoes of other parties to accomplish this equitable result. The surety subrogation rights are very powerful with respect to the surety's rights to the bonded contract funds. However, because they are grounded or based in equity, there are times when other competing parties have better rights than the surety has under its subrogation rights. This presentation will address some of those times when the surety may not prevail and may not be equitably entitled to the bonded contract funds over the claims of other parties. This discussion does not mean that the surety must give up and not assert its subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds. Rather, some courts have ruled in favor of other parties based upon that court's understanding of what is equitable and whether the surety subrogation rights should prevail. Mike and I will address four of those instances. The first instance is when the surety is competing with the obligee for the bonded contract funds. When a surety performs the principal's defaulted bonded contract under the performance bond, the bonded contract funds are usually paid directly to the surety for its performance or to a completion contractor for its performance, regardless of the performance option that is undertaken, whether it's a takeover, a surety financing, a tender, or an obligee completion using its own completion contractor. But when a surety performs under the payment bond by paying the principal subcontractors and suppliers due to the principal's default in making such payments, and that default is a default under the principal's bonded contract with the obligee, some obligees attempt to set off the bonded contract funds that they would otherwise owe to the surety performing under the payment bond to pay other non-bonded obligations that the principal owes to the obligee. Here's an example. Let's say that the bonded contract is for a million dollars. The principal has been paid 800000 The principal completes the performance of the work on the bonded project 
and there remains $200,000 to be paid. The surety pays $400,000 in payment bond claims to the principal subcontractors and suppliers and makes a claim for the remaining balance of the bonded contract funds of $200,000. However, the obligee has other claims arising out of other obligations from the principal. It could be amounts owed by the principal to the obligee on another non-bonded contract or other unsatisfied debts in excess of $200,000. Or it could be the obligee as a taxing authority, whether federal, state, or local, is owed taxes in excess of 200000 from the principal. As a result, the obligee sets off, or literally takes, or steals, the 200000 remaining bonded contract funds to pay off these other principal debts or obligations to the obligee, despite the fact that the surety has performed under the payment bond and incur losses of $400,000. Now, you've got to remember, the surety executed a million-dollar performance bond and a million-dollar payment bond on the bonded project under the expectation that the obligee would pay that amount to either the principal for its performance of the work or the principal's payment of its substance suppliers who provided work and materials on the bonded project or the obligee would pay the surety those funds if the surety performed in, in the event that the principal defaulted in its performance of the work or its payment of subcontractors and suppliers. In the Muncie Trust case in 1947 U.S. Supreme Court decision, the principal completed the performance of the work but failed to pay its subs and suppliers. The surety paid those amounts uh, to the bond, payment bond claimants and made a claim for the remaining bonded contract funds. Using the numbers that I just gave to you as an example, the Supreme Court held that the obligee could set off against the $200,000 in bonded contract funds for the principal's other obligations to the obligee. In that, in that case, it was a debt on another non-bonded contract and not pay the $200,000 to the surety that had paid $400,000 in claims to payment bond claimants. The surety lost despite asserting its subrogation rights to the rights of the obligee and the payment bond claimants to, re to the remaining bonded contract funds. The result in Muncie Trust, as found in many cases that have been decided since then, has been to suggest that there is a distinction between the subrogation rights of a surety performing under its performance bond and the subrogation rights of a surety performing under its payment bond. Almost 50 years later, the correct result was set out in the Restatement of Suretyship, Section 31, which is thoroughly analyzed in the subrogation book, both in Scott Leo's Chapter 2 and in other places. Um, under both the performance bond and the payment bond, the surety's performance and payment satisfies the defaulting principles obligations to the obligee under the bonded contract and the bonds, namely the surety performs the work, and pays for the payment of the principal subs and suppliers. It is the obligee that is the one that requires the principal to pay its subcontractors and suppliers under the terms of the bonded contract, and the obligee is the one that obtains the promise of the principal and the surety under the payment bond that the principal subcontractors and suppliers will be paid. When the surety cures the principal's defaults by paying the principal's subs and suppliers, under the payment bond, the surety is subrogated to the rights of the obligee to the remaining bonded contract funds. 
Section 31 of the restatement describes the surety subrogation rights as the surety's right of return performance. The surety performs the principal's defaulted obligations to the obligee under its bonds, and the surety is entitled to the obligee's return performance, which is payment to the surety of the remaining bonded contract funds, regardless of whether the surety's performance is under the performance bond or the payment bond or both. Under Section 31 of the Restatement, the obligee may not set off an unrelated obligation against the bonded contract funds when the surety is entitled to return performance. In summary, despite the problems that Muncie Trust has generated over the years in forcing courts to distinguish the surety subrogation rights, depending upon whether the surety is performing its performance payment bond obligations, there are good and legal and equitable grounds to argue that Muncie Trust is wrong and that the obligee, whether it is an owner or general contractor, has no right to set off other obligations owed to them by the principal against the bonded contract funds that the surety is claiming under its subrogation rights. Mike? Okay. Thanks, George. So let's spend a few minutes talking about um, a situation where the federal government is holding the funds. A prerequisite to the surety's successful assertion of its subrogation rights against the federal government is the requirement that the surety provide notice to the government. The surety must notify the federal government that the principal has failed to fulfill its contractual obliga obligations and is in default and that the surety is entitled to the remaining bonded contract funds. The surety will generally not be able to recover the federal government payments made prior to providing that notice. The surety's rights will depend on the sufficiency of that notice as well. The notice must provide, quote, some evidence or indication of the principal's default, unquote. A notice that contains a mere implied assignment of rights or simply requests that the federal government make payments to the surety rather than the principal is generally going to be held to be insufficient. But assuming that proper notice has been given, the extent of the federal government's obligation to withhold the bonded contract funds after receiving that notice will depend on whether the federal government is acting as a mere stakeholder of the bonded contract funds or whether it continues to have an interest in the bonded contract funds to complete the project. So following the completion of a project, the government obligee is acting as a stakeholder of the remaining bonded contract funds. However, during the performance of the bonded contract, the government obligee has a, quote, important interest in the timely and efficient completion of the contract work, unquote. This interest of the government gives rise, then, to a potential limitation on the surety's subrogation rights. If the federal government is acting as a stakeholder, after it receives proper notice from the surety, it must withhold the bonded contract funds or risk having to make a double payment. Moreover, as a mere stakeholder, if the federal government is faced with competing claimants to the bonded contract funds, it should not decide on its own who has a superior right, but instead should seek relief in the courts. If the project is ongoing, however, the federal government continues to have an interest in the bonded contract funds, and as a result, the federal government is not automatically required to discontinue making progress payments upon receipt of the surety's notice. Rather, the courts recognize that the federal government has an interest in the in the principle completing the construction contract, and as such, the federal government has broad discretion and flexibility in determining whether to withhold the progress payments for the benefit of the surety or to pay the progress payments to the principal to continue the performance of the construction contract. The government's discretion includes whether to default or terminate the principal and use and disbursements of the progress payments. 
notwithstanding the, discre the discretion given to the federal government, when the surety has provided notice that the principal is in default, the government does have a duty to exercise its discretion responsibly and to consider the surety's interest in conjunction with other problems encountered in administration of the contract. The federal government must take reasonable steps to determine whether the principal has the capacity and intention to complete its obligations under the construction contract. So the exercising of this discretion was commented on um, in a case called Balboa Insurance Company versus United States, a very well-known case, 775 F. 2nd, 1158, Federal Circuit, 1985. In that, in that case, the court listed eight factors as, as important in determining whether a government obligee has exercised reasonable discretion in distributing the bonded contract funds. Those factors are uh, attempts by the government obligee after notification by the surety to determine whether the principal has the capacity and the intent to complete, the percentage of the completion of the, of the contract at the time of the notice, efforts by the government to determine the bonded contract performance after the notice, whether the bonded contract was subsequently completed by the principal, whether payments of bonded contract funds subsequently reached the principal's subs and suppliers, whether the government obligee had notice of the principal's performance problems prior to receiving the notice from the surety, whether the government obligee's actions violate its own statutes or regulations, and finally, evidence that the bonded contract could or could not have been completed as quickly or cheaply by a successor. The federal government may be held liable to the surety for wrongful payment if the, if the government's payment was made after receiving the surety notice and the payment was found to be arbitrary or capricious an abuse of discretion, or was deliberate and fraudulent act of bad faith. But the surety's burden of establishing that, that the government has abused its discretion is a very high standard. So switch gears here and talk a little bit for a few minutes about, um, about what is performance. George mentioned that one of the requirements for, uh, for subrogation is performance. And most courts require that. Upon the principal's default, the surety must perform pursuant to its bond obligations to remedy the principal's default before any subrogation rights can arise. The extent of the surety's performance that is necessary will be determined by the surety's undertaking as set forth in the bond as well as in the scope of the underlying contract. The question becomes how much performance by the surety is required to give rise to the surety's subrogation rights. Most courts considering the question hold to the view that the surety must fully perform to support the surety's assertion of subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds. The next question is, well, what exactly constitutes full performance? Under the restatement of suretyship, the surety may only assert its subrogation rights upon the total satisfaction of the underlying obligations. Thus, most courts have adopted the view that full performance has been achieved when the claims of the obligee and the third-party claimants under the payment bond are fully satisfied. The rationale for the performance requirement is based on the conclusion that the surety is not subrogated to the rights of creditors as long as the creditors retain any interest in those rights. Stated differently, the claimants should not be required to compete with the surety in the enforcement of the claimant's own rights or be otherwise prejudiced by the surety's assertion of its subrogation rights. So let's look at how this issue of full performance can play out with respect to limiting of the surety's subrogation rights. Now, you might think that if the surety pays the full penal sum of its payment bond, that the surety has fully performed and would be entitled to assert its subrogation rights. You would be wrong. 
in American Surety Company versus, of New York versus Westinghouse Electric Manufacturing Company, 296 U.S. 133, 1935, the Supreme Court of the United States addressed the limits of the surety subrogation rights. In that case, the principal entered into a contract for drilling a well in the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. The surety issued the typical Miller Act bonds. The principal finished the work on the project but did not make full payment to all its subs and suppliers. The payment bond claims that were asserted exceeded the penal sum of the, of the payment bond, so the surety paid the, the penal sum of the payment bond into court. Thereafter, the unpaid subs and suppliers in the surety asserted competing claims against the retainage held by the government. The surety's claim was based on its equitable right of subrogation. The unpaid subs and suppliers asserted that the total effect of the, the Miller Act and the contract and the bond when read together was to make the equity of the surety subordinate to their interest in being fully paid. They contended that an equitable interest, which while not a lien in the strict sense, should operate with the same effect when competing with the surety's equitable right of subrogation. The district court in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit gave priority to the subs and suppliers. The Westinghouse Court affirmed and stated, a surety who has undertaken to pay the creditors of the principal, though not beyond a stated limit, may not share in the assets of the principal by reason of such payment until the debts thus partially protected have been satisfied in full. So we see that the general rule is that the surety is not subrogated to the rights of creditors, nor the creditor's interest in security, as long as the creditors retain any interest in the right or the security. Um, there are exceptions to this rule, and one, one court has noted where the surety has fully performed under its performance bond, but has not fully satisfied all of the claimants under the payment bond, but has paid the penal sum of the payment bond, that that surety may have priority uh, over the subs and suppliers by virtue of its performance on the performance bond. So then you might think that the payment bond surety subrogation rights have priority over the principal's subcontractors and suppliers who are not paid but whose claims have been barred by the statute of limitations. In the bankruptcy context, you would be wrong. In American Surety Company of New York versus Samsell, 327 U.S. 269, 1946, the payment bond required claimants to file suit within six months after the principal ceased operations of the work. The surety paid five claims under the bond, but did not pay three untimely claims of subcontractors and suppliers. The Samsell Court stated that upon bankruptcy of the principal, the surety's claim is subordinated to that of the unpaid subs and suppliers, and stated, quote, as long as there are creditors of the class for whose benefit the original surety bond was written, the surety company cannot participate in dividends from the estate until these creditors have been paid in full, unquote. So, so there are circumstances where the surety has appeared to have fully performed, paying its penal sum of the bond, and still its subrogation rights um, have been found to be limited. Another example where the surety subrogation rights may not be uh, available is when it's dealing with a bank. Um, for the most part, the surety beats the bank. Uh, the surety subrogation rights are not affected or modified by the uni uh, Uniform Commercial Code. Uh, the surety subrogation rights are not dependent upon any assignment or lien or contractual rights to the bonded contract funds. The surety subrogation rights are not a security interest that requires filing under the UCC to perfect the surety subrogation rights. 
whereas the, the bank's rights come from an assignment and a perfected security interest. But the bank has rights to the bonded contra contract funds, and the bank's security interest only attaches to the bonded contract funds when the principal has rights to and is entitled to receive the bonded contract funds. If the principal is in default under the bonded contract, then the terms of that contract normally provide that the principal is not entitled to payment from the obligee until the principal has cured the defaults. The principal has not earned the bonded contract funds. There is no debt due from the obligee to the principal until the principal performs its obligations under the bonded contract and the principal has not performed when it is in default under its obligations. If there is no debt due or no payment due to the principal from the obligee, there is nothing to which the bank's security interest may attach. Upon the principal's default and the surety's performance, it is the surety that is entitled to the payment of the bonded contract funds, which is the return performance that we talked about previously, and not the principal or the, or the bank that is claiming through the principal uh, pursuant to the bank's security interest. Again, the surety almost always beats the bank. However, there are times when the obligee pays progress payments to the bank or the principal, which have been earned by the principal and paid by the obligee prior to the principal's default under the bonded contract. When the progress payments are earned by the principal and paid to the bank prior to the principal's default, or if the bank receives payments from the principal without notice or knowledge that the principal has failed to pay its subcontractors and suppliers on the bonded project from the progress payments, the surety has been unable to recover from the bank pursuant to its subrogation rights the payments received by the bank, despite the fact that the surety may have subsequent losses. In general, in the absence of knowledge or fraud on the part of the bank, the surety may not use its subrogation rights to obtain progress payments that have already been paid to the bank. However, banks have been held to be on notice of the surety's subrogation rights as banks are charged with knowledge that many principals are required to provide bonds. When the principal is in default under the bonded contract prior to the payment of the progress payment and the bank is aware of the principal's default, the surety may be entitled to obtain from the bank the progress payment that was received by the bank. This issue is fundamentally determined by the facts and circumstances of the case. The subrogation book addresses the issues and factors and especially what the bank knew about the principal's financial issues and possible financial distress, the existence of the surety subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds, and the bank's actual or constructive knowledge or notice of the principal's bonded contract defaults. The surety subrogation rights prevail in a fight for the bonded contract funds over the perfected security interest rights of the bank in most instances because there is no debt due from the obligee to the principal which is in default under the terms of the bonded contract. When the principal may be due an, an earned progress payment and that payment is paid to the bank, then the bank may prevail under some factual circumstances, but not always. Okay, George, thanks. Uh, we just got a couple minutes here. I wanted to just talk about a situation where subrogation rights may be uh, impacted when dealing with the Infernal Revenue Service. 
course, the Internal Revenue Code allows the IRS to place a lien on all property and property rights of a delinquent taxpayer, and it can do that by asserting a tax lien and filing that, recording that tax lien in the appropriate um, uh, state recording um, location. And, and then the code has under 26 U.S.C. section 6323 subsection C talks about then the, you know, the priorities and the relative priorities of the parties once a tax lien has been filed and recorded. And, and you know, long story short there is that the sureties have uh, been given a priority under the right circumstances uh, where, where, the, where the surety's subrogation rights will be held to relate back to the date that the bond was issued. But the question comes up when the IRS uh, can also choose, instead of just filing a tax lien, to do a tax levy and actually attach the property. And so the question is, what happens there in that circumstance to the surety's um, subrogation rights? And, and the issue is one of timing. Uh, so you may have subrogation rights, you may have priority over the IRS to the funds, but if you don't assert those rights within nine months of the tax levy being filed, you're going to lose those rights. There's a Supreme Court case that says that the exclusive remedy for a third party asserting any rights to property that have been levied by the IRS is to pursue a wrongful levy action under the, under the Internal Revenue Code. And in order to do that, you have a nine-month period of limitation. Um, there's a, a one case, uh, School Board versus Joint Venture Construction Corp., 2004 Westlaw, 130-4058, uh, Southern District of Florida, 2004, where, where the IRS had recorded a tax lien and then levied on the bonded contract funds. A period of 18 months went by, and the obligee uh, filed a, an interpleader action and then the surety came in and was trying to contest for the funds, and the court held that the surety was barred. Even though it may have had superior rights, it didn't assert a wrongful levy within nine months, and therefore its rights were barred, and the IRS prevailed on the funds. So be careful. Um, you know, you may have better, better um, priority through your subrogation rights, but if you don't assert it timely, then you're going to be out of luck if the IRS has issued a levy. So, all right, we're, uh, we're done with the presentation. Actually, we're a couple minutes over. Sorry about that. Um, but before we close, wanted to uh, let everyone know that the next uh, presentation will be April 10th at 1230, of course. And the topic will be sort of the, the reverse image of this. It will be the reach of the surety's subrogation rights beyond the, con the bonded contract funds. Again, George and I will give that presentation. Uh, quick rundown of things coming up in the industry. The, the Philadelphia Surety Claims meeting was supposed to be this coming Wednesday, but because of the uh, forecasted snow, we've canceled that meeting and moved it to April 12th. The Chicago lunch meeting is April 6th, and the Southern Surety Claims Conference is April 19th through the 21st in Nashville. And I just made my reservations. The hotels are booking up down there, so you got to uh, get on that if you're going to go to the Southern. Let me um, unmute the line. Okay, if anybody has any questions, fire away. Mike, this is Catherine Freeman at CNA. Um, <clears throat> we are under 
increasing pressure not to seek indemnity rights on a lot of our JV projects where, you know, we may have the indemnity of a parent or we may have the indemnity of, you know, one of the members or, or what have you, the scenarios differ. Um, <clears throat> but in particular, we may not get the indemnity of certain critical entities or of the JV itself, even if it's a special purpose entity. Um, and the, the fallback is always, well, you have your common law rights, but um, what are your comments or, or thoughts? Can you give us some bullet point ammunition to take back in that scenario? Well, first of all, this is George. First of all, your, your, your common law rights are only relevant to the principal who executes the bond. Uh, you have no common law rights against any other entity. So if you've got a joint venture, um, depending on the law of the state, a joint venture could be the par a partnership, and maybe you have the, uh, the partners of the joint venture. But in, mo in every other instance, whoever you write as your principal on the bond is only the only entity in which you've got clear rights of indemnity and reimbursement, um, exoneration and clear timid. Uh, that's why we get indemnity agreements is because if you're going to add parties, if you're going to have parties out there that you need their indemnity, that they stand out there with financial wherewithal to reimburse you if you have a loss, you have to have an indemnity agreement. They are not covered by the common law rights. And of course, uh, if you if you pay if you perform, and then you have the subrogation rights of the you performed for. So if you perform for an obligee, then you have the obligee's rights to make the claim for breach of the performance bond or other bond against the parties to the bond. So you have you have that right as well. But again, George, as George pointed out, I mean that's not going to take you beyond whoever is a party to that bond. Somebody else had a question behind that, and we kind of covered over that. What was that? Catherine, I don't know if you were asking another question or whether somebody else was. No, I think it must have been someone else. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Any, any thoughts on the issue of, uh, of doing an hour-long presentation, maybe once or twice a year, to provide some credits? Good. Always I think well. that sounds awesome, Mike. Yes. Yes, that sounds good. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, we I, I would agree with that. If you've got a topic that might be, uh, you know, we we'd be interested in hearing it. Um, you know, I think the CLE requirements is if you do an hour-long presentation, it has to be on the same. You know, we can't give you, you know, a number of snippets, but we'll have to check into that. Um, are there any other questions with respect to today's topic or near near today's topic? Didn't want to cut that off. This is uh, the the limitations is tough because uh, you know we all think that we win all the time on our subrogation rights and these are nuances in it, but they're nuances that we really have to be aware of. You don't want to spend a lot of money going down the road and all of a sudden realize that that there's clear law that under certain circumstances you're not entitled to it. 
uh, I faced this when going against a bank who got contract funds, uh, and the issue was, did they know about the default of the principal? Uh, what were their what was their position on that? Uh, and that's that's a tough one. Okay. You know, they get the money and they want to keep it and they fight you for it. So, where is your laptop? It's around. Any other questions? All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for Thank participating. You. Thank you. Thanks, Thank George you. Mike. Thanks.